Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. As a straight man, I feel like I have a disproportionate amount of lesbian friends. Um, Thank you. Like, statistically speaking, I have more lesbian friends than most lesbians. This is not a joke in any way, shape, or form. Many of my lesbian friends, on their own accord, not me, by the way, because this would be weird if it was opposite, call themselves my loyal lesbians. If I told them to say that, that's how you get canceled, uh, just so you know, if you want to, to figure that out. And the gift of having lesbian friends as a straight man is you realize what you don't know, which apparently is a lot. And every time I hang out with my lesbian friends, and Brittany's a part of this, is I'm like, I leave feeling, because she's like full of optimism and joy and goodness, but I'm like, am I a Neanderthal? Like, I clearly don't get the world. How did I ever end up with a woman, right? When there's like women for women. Like, you guys, you just make so much sense. You understand so much. You should not allow teenage boys to learn about women from themselves. They don't have frontal lobes. They don't understand. Like, there should be a lesbian teacher for every set of teenage boys. None of this is a joke, by the way. I was thinking through this this week. These are not bits. This is literally what I've been thinking about because I'm like, oh, there's so many things in this world that I want to relearn, that I was taught something that was not helpful. I was taught sex by my 15-year-old dude friends who didn't know shit, right? Like, we're talking about stuff like, yeah, bro, that's what you do. That is not what you do. No woman's ever like, they figured it out. That's how we're satisfied right there. No, we don't know anything, right? And that's okay. Uh, We all need to keep growing and evolving and finding relationships and becoming as human beings where we constantly relearn what it means to be human. I think about this in so many aspects of life. I think about it in just even leaving high school. Do you find it interesting that you will know things like the periodic table and the Pythagorean theorem? They will test you on ACTs and SATs, and this is what will get you into college. But no one taught you about interest rates. That's crazy. We're doing this all wrong, people, right? If you're not an engineer, then there's a lot of other things that you should be learning in this world or in the world of church. I think all the time about the things that I want to relearn that I was taught so many Bible verses to memorize. And I memorized a lot. I remember like being a part of a group and like deep in Chronicles, like trivia, like, you know, like who was this king here and who was the bad king of Manasseh for 55 years? Did you teach me to be kind? Did you teach me to be compassionate? Did you show us about justice? Why did I learn about these Bible facts if it didn't change who I was and the type of human being that I would become? That the gift of relearning is that. It's a gift. And today, the big idea that we want to talk about is relearning to be human. That when we relearn to be human, the big thing that I always bring back to is that God was always happy with you. And so much of what we need to relearn as we become new, evolved, growing human beings in this world, asking all of these questions, is that incredible idea that God has already been satisfied with me. God already loves me. God is already happy with me, and we're already playing these games all of the time. And so to do that, we're going to talk about some things. We already talked about lesbians. That's good. (laughs) Covered. You can put a check there. Uh, Pythagorean theorem. Also check. That was good. Nice. 
And if we talk about Pythagorean theorem, then we can talk about relearning to be human. If we can do that, then we need to look at an ancient mindset. And if we can look at an ancient mindset, then we can talk about how God's already happy with you. And if we can do that, then the whole thing is a gift. And if you can think about it being a gift, then I'll tell you about the sixth best restaurant in the world called La Atier, and that time that I spent way too much money and thought I had to give plasma just to eat there. And then if we can talk about that, then we can talk about it being enough. And if it can be enough, then we can talk about the vindromedial prefrontal cortex, because Everybody loves the affirmation part of your brain. Am I right? Hey! And if we can do that, then we can talk about what it means to be pleasing. And if we can be pleasing, then of course, Iran, my friends. And if we can talk about that, then we, if we can relearn, then we can remake some things. Follow along with me in Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called to Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting, and he said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as an offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. By the way, the rabbis say this, and I think this is rude, but it goes, apparently it fits very fitting with everyone here today. The rabbis said this thousands of years ago. Why do they always use a male from the flock for the offering? And the rabbis literally say, Because they were expendable. <laughs> Nobody? I was the only person that found that hilarious, that a rabbi thousands of years ago was like, oh, they got a semen. Other than that, they're not that helpful. That's great. All right. That's just me. Too much information. All right. TMI. I was just trying to connect the dots if you hadn't. You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so it'll be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the side of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. I know this sounds so archaic, but it's going somewhere, I promise. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, will put the fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat and the wood that is burning on the altar. And you are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to be burned all of it on the altar. This is life verse, I get it then it's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to pause there. The chapter, chapter one is going to go on in three more ways. It's going to talk about the herd, it's going to talk about the flock, and it's going to talk about the birds. It's all going to talk about it in the exact same way. But at the very end, it always ends with that phrase, and it's going to be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. I know you're sitting here in 2022 in Los Angeles on a Sunday morning, and you're like, man, why are we still reading Leviticus? This feels so archaic and outdated. And I'm like, you're right. Everything you're saying is correct. But at the time, it was completely revolutionary and evolutionary. And here's the thing about revolution and evolution. There always needs to be moments in our lives and in history where we evolve in some way. And when we evolve, we keep trying something until that thing works so well that we can evolve to the next thing. So there was a time in history for the ancient Jews where this form of sacrifice was the most evolutionary thing that you could do. And here's why. Because in the ancient world, imagine this. You are growing your own crops. You actually know where your food comes from. I know, it's crazy already. You just don't deliver from Amazon Prime. And so you are growing your food in the ancient world. And one year you notice... I have more apples than I've ever had before. Why is this the case? And so you say to yourself, it must be the deities. Of course it's the deities. Why I have more apples this year than I had last year? And so you say to yourself, I will give a few of these apples back to the deities to thank them for the plentiful amount of apples that I had this year. And you create a practice around it because you live in this angst that if the crops do not grow, you die. That's pretty practical. And so you think to yourself, how do I make the gods happy with me? Do I offer more 
um, sacrifices to the rain god because we need more rain this year? Oh, I've noticed that it's been too hot. Do I offer sacrifices to the sun god? Do I offer sacrifices to the fertility gods because things are going on with our animals or with our own lives and we need another generation to farm here? That you have to imagine the anxiety that must have been going on, the psychological distress in the ancient mind. You're constantly playing this game. Am I doing enough? Am I in the right standing? Have I figured this thing out? What if the gods are angry with me? Did I satisfy them? Wait, is this an ancient mindset or a current mindset? How many of us feel the same way all of the time? Am I doing enough? Did I say all the prayers right? Is God satisfied with me? Now, I know I'm doing this deconstruction thing, but to be honest, I go to Thanksgiving and I talk to my aunt and sometimes I wonder, am I going to hell? Because there's still all these other things in our life where it feels like, oh, I'm evolving and this is revolutionary, but it's not going on in everybody's life around me. And so we ask the same questions as the ancient mindset. And the book of Leviticus is God's way of saying, I'm not asking for sacrifices so that I feel better. I'm giving you some specifics around sacrifices so that you feel okay. God is saying, I don't want you guessing anymore. I don't want you to have to worry, did you do enough of the right things or did you do it wrong? And that's why the other nation invaded you this year or the crops didn't grow. And so you'll notice that in the sacrifices for Leviticus, it's not attached to something specific. It's not saying A plus B equals C. If you do this, then these are the types of wealth and goodness that are going to come to your life. This first chapter in Leviticus 1 is all about getting your conscious and your psyche to relax. That God's saying, I will tell you very specifically what to do so that you know that you are pleasing to God. What a relief. That doesn't feel archaic now. The way they went about it feels archaic to us. But man, how many of us want that type of relief in our own lives? Just to know, oh, I'm okay. And that's where we come to a place like New Abbey. That's where you come to church. That's why faith tradition is helpful so that we can constantly remind ourselves of the deepest truths of what it means to be human. And so as we think about these things, as we think about relearning to be human, I want Leviticus chapter 1 to be this ancient, archaic chapter that reminds you that God is already happy with you. And that if God is already happy with you, then there's three things I think that we can take away. The first thing is simply this that you're enough. Man, how many of us just need that in our lives? You're enough. How many of you are in a relationship right now that all you want your partner to let you know is that you're enough? How many of you just deeply needed to hear from your parents, you're enough, they're satisfied with you? How many of you need that from an employer right now? You're enough. How many of you need to hear that from the divine, from God? from the one who makes all of the universe, from the one who sees a thousand sunsets on a hundred billion planets and all of the waves crashing at once, that God who holds 13.8 billion light years of cosmos together looks at you and says, ah, you're enough. You don't have to ask the questions, where do I stand with you, God? Did I do the things right today? Are you mad at me today, God? Do I need to do more? How many of you grew up from a religion and you came to this place because you grew up in a place where you were always wondering, do you need to do more? Do you need to pray more? Do you need to worship more? Do you need to buy exclusively more Chris Tomlin CDs? 
Is there some type of more that you need to do because you're not quite sure that you can live freely into your life, but you need to live into some cookie cutter life that some pastor told you that you need to live into to satisfy this God? And thousands of years ago, this God says to a group of slaves, and let me pause there because this is so critically important for you understanding the book of Leviticus. A group of slaves who just a few months previous to this being written, they believed that they were the property of Pharaoh. Their identity was as the property of Pharaoh. They were slaves to somebody else who in that world was another God. And that God constantly reminded them, you are not enough. You are not good enough. You can always do more. You are not even a human being. Now how revolutionary is this? That there's a God out there that says, you are no longer slaves. You are free. You are made in my image. And we're going to relearn together what it means to be human. And in case you think this is some story that just stuck thousands of years ago from people who were slaves and now free, how true is this a metaphor for just what it means to be human? How many of us have felt subjugated at some point in our life where the story that we were telling ourselves was limiting, that the the story that society was telling you was limited, that you could only be so much or go so far because of what you looked like or what your gender was or your sexuality or what your family of origin told you or what country you were born in? And this is a story of saying, no, no, this is a story for everybody. This is a story where everybody relearns that they're enough. I was laying in bed with uh, my oldest son the other night, and we were just going through like our nighttime routine, and he starts to cry. And he says, Dad, I feel like we're not buddies anymore. I said, oh my gosh, big guy, why would you ever feel that way? And he reminded me of this moment that had happened a month before where he just was having a moment where he was losing his shit because he's nine years old. And that's what nine-year-olds do sometimes. And I know that because I'm a grown-ass man. And that's okay. And we have things that we try to help our kids learn when they lose their shit. Because we're trying to be healthy adults. We don't always do it perfectly. Trust me. You can ask them and their therapist 20 years from now. But for now, we're doing our best. And one of the tools that we try to show them when they're angry is, you're allowed to be angry. I am not here to dismiss or demean or minimize your feelings. But that doesn't always mean that you need to be angry in front of the whole house. Maybe this is a time for you to go to your room, get some of that anger out, and then when you feel calm inside, we can find some language to talk through it with one another. It's something that we try. And so when he was angry one day, he just had done some whack stuff, and he was angry and frustrated, and he felt like, I did something there that broke the bond, and now because of that, Dad, we're not buddies. And I had to come in and reassure him, There's nothing that you could do that would mean that we're not buddies. That's okay that you were angry and frustrated. Every kid needs to be reassured, of course you're enough. Of course I'm satisfied with you. Of course you're in right standing with me. There's something in our brains and a part of our cortex that needs affirmation. And we particularly need affirmation from those that are raising us. And when we don't get that affirmation, there's wounding that happens inside of us for the rest of our lives to go try to seek that affirmation. Neuroscience and psychology will teach us that. That at the deepest core of who we are, we need that affirmation even from God to know that, you're, that we're enough, that we're still buddies, that it's okay. 
And we learn from the book of Leviticus that God is saying, oh, let me just remind you again and again and again that you are enough, that you are a pleasing aroma to me. I know that's super weird if God said you're a pleasing aroma to me. (laughs) But imagine this is like poetic, ancient, beautiful language, which it is. And that God is just saying, it's okay. And if we can relearn to be human by starting with this idea that God's happy with us because we're enough, then we can move on to the second reality that we're a gift. That when we think about the sacrificial system, all the sacrificial system is, is God helping the Israelites and the Jews realize this incredible beauty that they are a gift. That they are bringing gifts as a reminder that they are gifts. And imagine if you were slaves, subjugated for hundreds of years, how much you need to be reminded of that. Imagine for so many of us, when we grew up in a world because of like Calvinism or some horrible theology like that, where you were told that you are somehow depraved and that there's something wrong with you and you didn't do it, but some belly buttonless people thousands of years ago in a garden, they did it. And because of that, you are trash now. Thank you for the good news. That's newer theology. That's not helpful. And that theology has leaked itself into American culture and evangelicalism and other parts of conservatism that has eroded our consciousness and the way that we feel about ourselves. And worse, it erodes the ways that we feel about God. That we think that we start off the day thinking that God thinks something bad about us instead of God saying, no, 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 my God, goodness, you've been a gift the entire time. The beauty of Leviticus 1, and we didn't read the whole chapter, is that there's gifts that are being offered. You can offer the herd or the flock or birds. Here's what God's saying there. No matter who you are or your station in life or your ability to pay for things, you can bring a gift to the table. That is so revolutionary. This is not a world or a religion or a relationship where only a select few get to earn the thing. God is trying to map this out. And after every single one of those stories, after God talks about the herd and what you do with the intestines and all the other things, right? Or then the flock or then the birds. It always ends with that phrase. And then you will know that you're a pleasing aroma to God. God is saying that everyone is equal at this table. Imagine the early church, what they did with this. The early church is in the exact same situation. You have a bunch of people in the Roman Empire, the vast, vast, vast majority, like 99.9% of the people don't have rights, aren't seen as human, and they work for the elite, including Caesar, who is also a god. And then you have this Jesus who comes in. And interestingly enough, when this Jesus comes in and tells the story of good news, the story of good news is not that I'm going to get you to heaven one day. All that is an incredible benefit, and I'm all about eternal life. Let's go. That's not the thing that Jesus talks about. The thing that Jesus talks about is he keeps talking about his kingdom here on earth now, about bringing heaven to earth. And what Jesus reminds all of these people is that they're valuable. And the reason that Christianity for the first 350 years, when there was subjugation and oppression and martyrdom, grew by 20 million people, it's because you gave people value and dignity and integrity. And Jesus let people know you're valuable, you're a gift. Every story that you see of Jesus before you see the miracle, Jesus somehow comes in and reminds people that they're made in the image of God. The woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, the people that were demonically possessed, the people who didn't have any food, Jesus always practically takes care of their needs before he does the supernatural stuff. Because they got to live on earth. they got to live in this space. Jesus is reminding people, oh my gosh, you are a gift. So the early Christians, they would gather around these tables 
and they would have these meals with one another. Because it didn't matter if you were a senator, or if you were a slave, or a male, or a female, or a Greek, or a Jew, and they would have these things called love feasts. Where imagine where you all just get to sit together and revel in this reality that you are made in the image of the divine. And imagine that you had never heard that before. And maybe you've been to New Abbey a long time where you just had healthy religion and spirituality in your life and you've heard that a thousand times. You're going to need to hear it a thousand more times. Because to relearn to be human, this is the messaging that we need to hear again and again and again and again. That you are a gift. And that's why the sacrificial system is tied to food all of the time. Again, because in the ancient mindset, and we forget this, all of the time living in Los Angeles in 2022, if you don't eat a meal, you die. I think we forget that all of the time. I forget that all of the time. If we don't have food, we will just eventually die. It's just that simple. And imagine a world where you just don't have Trader Joe's and Amazon Prime, right? You don't just have access to even like shitty foods everywhere and good foods. And if you didn't have access to them, you would just die. Like get this in your mind, right? Why the sacrificial system was so important? Because in the ancient world, they thought that even the gods were hungry and you had to feed them. And where this is evolutionary and revolutionary is this God is saying, no, 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 again, I'm not doing this so that I'm satisfied. I'm doing this so that you know that you're okay. And that's why the Bible is such a beautiful thing. By the way, I am like such a Bible nerd and obsessed with the Bible, like so not cool in 2022, but I will take it on my friends. And there's Psalm 50 in which God even says, I don't need your sacrifices. Am I hungry? Do you not know that the entire earth is mine? I own 10,000 cattle and 10,000 hills. I don't need you to bring me this. I'm doing this so that you feel okay. Because when you feel okay and safe and whole and healed, then you begin to participate with me in the healing of the world. That's a gift, my friends. We, me and my wife are like 25 years old, and we both had like real jobs for the first time. Does anyone remember like getting to that point where you're like making like real money and you're like, whoa, I got multi-thousands of dollars in my bank account right now. Where in the world might I go on credit card debt? Like you think some crazy questions to yourself. And so we decided to go to Paris and we loved Anthony Bourdain at the time. Any Anthony Bourdain fans? Oh my God, four of us, that's great, wonderful. And at the time, he had showcased this restaurant called La Atier, which was the sixth best restaurant in the world at the time, a Joel Rubicon restaurant. And I remember, like, seeing the price for it. I'm like, we absolutely can't afford this. But, like, we've never, like, had real money together before. So, like, let's just freaking go for it, right? And it's, like, this nine-course prefixed meal where, like, every dish is literally, like, on a spoon. And it's, like, they're, like, measuring each salt, right, grain that's on this thing. It's so perfectly dialed in. You, like, put this thing in your mouth, and you're like, this is food, this, like, we, we eat food every day. It just reminds you of the gift that is the world, right? I love this quote from the rabbis that says this, that is life going to be an endless struggle or is life a reminder that it's a gift to be received? That's the choice that we get to make. That every moment is an opportunity to reflect on the gift that is life and who we are, right? Is life a trial to be endured or a gift to be received? I remember in that moment, I'm like on, you know, bite number six. And this thing costs, like, every bite is like a million dollars, I think. Like, it's just absolutely intense. And there's some French sommelier, like, totally talking to me about wines and things that I don't understand. I was 25. He's like, don't you taste the oak here? I'm like, no, I think I'm just drunk. But whatever. (laughs) It's delicious. Keep bringing it on. Remember, like, on course number eight, my wife's like, man, I am too full. I cannot eat anymore. I'm like, you will put that in your mouth right now. That is a $100 bite. In it goes. We have to do this thing. 
And I don't know about you, it's not just the fine dining, but there's all these moments where you just realize that there's these gifts, that life is just a gift, and it's a gift, and it's a gift, and it's a gift. And sometimes we need fine dining in Paris at the sixth best restaurant in the world, and sometimes you just need your seven-year-old to remind you that there's a septopus and it has three hearts. But the miracles are everywhere. The gift is all the time. And the more that I realize that the gift is all the time, then I realize that I'm a gift as well. And that's an incredible opportunity and a way to live into the world. And something really practical I want you to think about as you think about a gift and relearning to be human is, would you start, maybe this is an idea, and I do it all the time now, is just making a note in your phone of like, oh, that was a miracle, I want to write it down. And you just get to review it at the end of the day. Oh my gosh, that was just a miracle. There's a reason that in the ancient world, we always pray before meals or you pray at bedtime. You want to know why? Because again, in the ancient world, if you didn't eat, you would. Get that in your head. So of course you would pray before a meal. God, thank you for this food. This food right here in this moment that's putting energy into my body that if I didn't eat it, I would die. And it's not that accessible because there's no Trader Joe's 3,000 years ago. Of course, God, this is a gift. And every time I eat, I just put food to my mouth and into my belly. I'm reminded of the wonder that is the whole thing. Oh, while you pray before you go to bed, maybe you haven't prayed in a while. And you're just going to say, hey, every time I lay down, I'm just going to say, God, thank you. Thank you for getting me here to this point. Do you know what I've gone through in my entire life, God? The trials and the tribulations and the craziness and the beauty and the evolutionary success and all the things I'm proud of. And I get to be in this moment, I get to like lay down and just rest and be thankful like I made it to here. I made it to here. That wasn't a promise. What a gift that I made it to here. And if I can make it to here, uh, imagine all that could be ahead. So if we can remind, be reminded that God is already happy with us and that we're enough. If we can be reminded that God is already happy with us and that we are a gift. Then we end with this reality that God is already happy with us and that we are pleasing. I'll always remember the moment in my life when it just clicked with Jesus' baptism for me. When God speaks over Jesus and says, this is my child with whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And I remember that was a mantra in my life for literally like 10 years. I would just say those words to myself. We say it all the time at New Abbey, right? As a reminder of who I am as a human being. Because if it's true of Jesus, it's true of me. That's just what the life of Jesus is all about. It's reminding us to, to relearn to be human and the goodness of what it means to be human. That God is just speaking over Jesus and saying, yeah, you are my child. And I needed to hear those words because I grew up in a broken home with emotional and verbal abuse. And every time that someone says that this was my child, it always came with some strings attached. And I didn't want to be that person's child. Or with whom I love. Man, love was something that we would exchange in my home, like a transaction. And I never knew what unconditional love was. It took me, like, I've been married for 16 years to this person who, like, understands that she's loved every day. Ugh. Like, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. Like, it's truly incredible. Sometimes I look at the way that she raises our kids, and I'm like, if they are messed up, this is on them. Or, or probably me, but you get it. Less likely mom. Less likely mom. Because there's an innate sense in her that she's just loved and she's just taught me that I've loved. All of the angst that I've gone through, I can come back to this place of comfort and safety knowing that I'm just loved. But the one that like kills my soul that's taken me so long to learn is an Enneagram 3 who just wants to prove himself every day in the world. And if I'm not doing enough, then I'm not good enough. Is oh, I'm pleasing. Of course God has to love me. You're God. But you like me? Ugh. And maybe that's something that you need in your life right now, somewhere just to realize that God is pleased with you. God actually likes you. 
And something practical I would say there is, the more that you realize that, or even if you just have moments of glimpses that you realize that you are pleasing to God, maybe a practice for you to grow in that is, would you think about the people in your life who please you, and would you just tell them this week? And I promise you, as you share that gift with them about their value, as you let them know that you're enough, it's only going to grow your capacity to realize how happy and satisfied God is with you. Maybe it's just one person that you're going to think of right now, that you're just going to reach out to them, you're going to text them, and maybe you don't say you're a pleasing aroma to me because that's weird. (laughs) Or maybe you're on Bumble and you do. (laughs) But I'm going to leave that in your hands. But I'm sure that there's been people in your life who, who do satisfy you in that way, who are pleasing to you, who remind you of the goodness, and would you reach out to them and remind them of that? And so we end with Leviticus chapter 1 with this. And by the way, we got like 25 chapters to go. Good luck us. It's going to be a good time. Is that if we can relearn to be human, then we can remake the world. This is what God was trying to teach the Israelites. Everything that you learned in Egypt, there's lessons there because sometimes we learn in oppression and sometimes we learn in the most difficult ways and we learn in the wilderness. But now that you've learned in the wilderness and I'm moving you into a promised land, you need to relearn what it means to be human. And we all know that. We've all been in places where we're letting some things go and we're trying to build a better version of ourselves because that version over there didn't work for us any longer. So as we relearn, we also want to remake the world. That's why there's millions of people right now who are standing around and supporting the women of Iran because we know that we have to relearn to be human. And it's just not women in Iran. There's women in our own country who are saying, you do not get to tell me that I am enough. You do not get to tell me that you are pleased with me. You do not get to tell me that I am a gift because I am already those things. And even though the world may not know that, we relearn those things as a society so that we can remake the world into a better place. That this is something that happens at the most cellular level of who we are. That we remember this within ourselves and we remember it within ourselves so that we can also topple systems and structures and kingdoms that do not reflect the image of God and the goodness of God in this world. That is the work that we are doing, Nimit. This is no small task. But we come every single week to remind ourselves of this reality that God is happy with us, that you are already enough, that you are a gift, my friends, and that you are pleasing. And in doing that, as we learn that reality, we will remake a more beautiful, better world together. Would you find those people around you and ask this question? 